1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading there in just a moment. A couple of things as we actually before get underway. First, I want to say to Jamie and the bell choir, thank you. It's been some time and it was nice to have that again. That's something I'd missed and it was a joy to share in that with you all. Thank you for that labor. Another, and this is just a little housekeeping among the brethren, those that are members of Boulevard, we ended our year 2021 very strong financially. And we've started 2022 not as well. So I'm just a little reminder. I think sometimes in the midst of weather and pandemics, holidays, wars and rumors of wars, sometimes we forget the ongoing ministry here. So just bear that in mind. If you have possibly not done what you'd intended, if you would do that, that would be of a great encouragement. Not making a big deal of it, just bringing it to your attention. Now, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll begin at verse 18. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep that have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This indeed is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, Father, not by our cleverness, not even by our preparation, but rather, Lord, by your Spirit, may the Word bear fruit today as you see fit. Convict and comfort your people. Bring sinners to saving faith. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The news is not good this week, is it? War, threats of more war, retaliation, sanctions, tyrants, videos of believers in the Ukraine praying and singing, He will hold me fast. Tears. Refugees flooding into Romania and other nations. How does all this relate to what we've seen in the text of 1 Peter? 
We've already seen how Peter exhorts us as believers to have an attitude of submission toward the government. And how does that function now in light of what goes on in Ukraine, what we witness? And I'm not for a moment going to tell you that's anything easy to figure out. I want to clarify something I had cited last week. I mentioned C.S. Lewis, and I didn't do a very good job of it. This is the problem when you go off script. Okay, uh, I do have notes here. Some people, Doug, do you ever have a manuscript? No, I have notes. And that is both good and occasionally not so good. I cited C.S. Lewis, and I didn't do a good job of setting this. Lewis once said, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. And he followed that up by saying, given the choice between a tyrant and a do-gooder, he would take the tyrant. Because the tyrant might get tired of messing with you. But a do-gooder always has a moral imperative to mess with you. And I was trying to extend that in saying, as we talked about government, given the choice between a bad government, a tyrant, and anarchy, I would take the tyrant. Or at least the tyrant is something of a known quantity. The problem with anarchy is you have multiple people with multiple ideas and multiple desires and lusts and problems that can be absolutely disastrous. So I feel better now. I can sleep tonight knowing that I fixed that. Maybe. Keep in mind that what Peter says to us in this book the principles are that. They are principles. How do they apply in the case of war? How are believers to live and act when there's po true political and social upheaval? Those are not easy questions. But here's something easy, and I will come to the text, I promise. We've prayed for the Ukraine. We ought to pray more. I, I found this yesterday from a young man, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this correct, Anton Ivanov, who is Russian and his wife Ukrainian. They are involved in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. And he did a little article about this. He titled it, Let Not Man Separate. And he was addressing how we could respond. And I found this so helpful. I wanted you to hear this. I heard it said that when you join the church, you marry the whole family of God. Christians who didn't know about each other's existence are now connected with other believers by invisible faith in the living God. Christians on this continent are connected to Christians across the ocean. Truly, we are one in Christ. In Ephesians 2.19, Paul says that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Ephesians 4, Paul says there's one body and one spirit, just as there's one God and Father of all. In Revelation 7, John makes it clear that people from every nation, from all tribes and languages, belong to God even now. Children of God, one in Christ, members of the same body and of the household of God, Individually members one of another, God connects and unites us, making us members of his mystical body. What God has joined together, let no man separate. 
My friend, we have brothers and sisters who we would not understand a word they said, nor would they understand a word we said. They are no less family. And they are suffering. It appears likely the church in Ukraine is going to be driven underground once more. And once again, we see the effects of a tyrant. And I'll say further in praying, I pray either for the tyrant's conversion or his end. And I think those are both proper prayers. We shall move on to the text, but let us commit ourselves to pray for our brothers and sisters, and not just them, for all who are suffering in the Ukraine. Let us remind ourselves of the second psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. You perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. No matter the tyrants, my friend, the King reigns. And his will will be done. Now Peter's trying to explain to us how to keep verse 12, chapter 2, our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds glorify God on the day of visitation. This text we consider is about living in the realities of the first century world. And let's admit, this is a difficult text. Not difficult to understand, but difficult to apply and figure out how we're supposed to obey. You see, as a culture, we glory in reactions of retribution and revenge. In fact, one of the best Hollywood movie lines and themes is some version of vengeance. We'll pay money to see how somebody creatively takes revenge. We like those things. Getting even is considered an essential aspect in our culture, I think, of a virtuous character. You see, I want to pass for my reactions when the situation's unfair. I want somebody to say, it's okay for you to act sub-Christianly whenever it's a bad situation. If the provocation is bad enough, you ought to get a pass. And I'm here to tell you, you don't. 
My humble reaction to difficult people in authority is actually central to my Christian witness. My humble reaction to difficult people in authority is actually central to my witness to Christ. Now consider for a moment the required reaction. He speaks here of slaves and masters. In Rome in the first century A.D., there were basically three social classes. There were Roman citizens who had full rights and privileges. There were freedmen, not Roman citizens, but had many privileges and rights. And then there were slaves. Slavery not of a racial concept. Let me make that very clear, my friend. Do not try to draw an equation between the slavery of American culture in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, if you will, and the slavery articulated here. They are not the same thing. Not saying it was proper what was done, but the slavery in the first century was not a matter of race. It was a matter typically of military conquest or economic necessity. If you had debts you couldn't pay, the way to pay them off was to put yourself in the position of being an indentured servant. In fact, the word that Peter uses here intriguingly is not the word we've heard so often, doulos, which is used by Paul to describe himself. He calls himself the doulos, the slave of Jesus Christ. He uses a word oiketai that means a domestic or household servant. I don't think Peter's trying to make too big a distinction here. It seems like he reserves doulos, slave, servant, for believers in the relationship to Jesus and uses this other word for human relationships. Many of these would have been regarded as professionals in our time. Managers of estates, physicians, teachers, tutors. And what he says, do you follow his statement? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And then he gives the caveat or the explanation that we don't want to hear. Not only to the good and gentle, but what? Also to the unjust. Now, part of the parallel for us today, my friends, has to be the workplace. We have nothing in our culture that would in any way really reflect the slave culture of first century Rome. But we do have situations where you work for somebody that isn't a nice person. Now, I'm not looking for hands nor testimonies. We haven't time. All of us could tell stories of what it's been like to work for somebody that was not easy to work for. But what he says here is we are to be subject. And he tells us in that 19th verse, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then he asks the painful question, verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Here's the principle. You didn't get your homework done on time. And you didn't complain because you got a bad grade. Bully for you. 
pulled over exceeding the speed limit and didn't grouse when you got the ticket? Yeah. Didn't finish a task on schedule for work because you were watching the World Series. You accept your chewing out. And in all of these, can I tell you that here is the Christian perspective on that. So what? If you get in trouble for doing the wrong thing and you take it, so what? Non-Christian people do that. There is nothing in that reaction that sets you apart from those who don't know Jesus. I know, well, well I, was, I was nice about it. Why shouldn't you have been? You're the one who messed up. The reaction required is whenever there's an unjust person over you. Or when you endure suffering unjustly. Or the end of verse 20. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing. I love that. Gracious thing in the sight of God. My friend, when you get in trouble for doing the right thing and you endure it well, that is something the Lord takes note of. Now, lest you think this is nothing more than a lecture in moralism and morality, I want you to catch the second part of this. And this is where we're going to camp a little longer. There's a required reaction. The requirement is be willing to suffer when you shouldn't and to do it well. But here is how that reaction gets redeemed. What is it in a believer to find motivation, the ability to react that way? What do I need so I do that? Rather than just gritting my teeth. And <laughs> yes, I'm very happy. I just love working here. Mm. I'm sorry, did I just do personal testimony for somebody? I... First of all, you need to be mindful of God. You have a conscience. Notice what he says in verse 19. This is a gracious thing. He says it again there. When mindful of God, the word there, mindful, is a word that's translated elsewhere, conscience, awareness. Christian, the first thing you've got to be reminding yourself of is that you live your life before God. It really doesn't matter what everybody around you thinks necessarily. There is a God to whom you answer. So you live conscious of God. Getting believers to have a God consciousness is one of the keys, I think, to Christian living. We easily forget. It gets off of our mind. It's also a matter of being commended by God. God calls that through Peter, it's a gracious thing. He says it again at the end of verse 20. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing. God looks at that and commends it. Okay, so I do it before God, and, and God sees it as a gracious thing. He commends it. Not only that, He calls us to this. We're not there yet. We'll get there, Lord willing. Third chapter, ninth verse. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We are called by God to do this. He says it in verse 21, the second chapter. For to this you have been called. Now, you know, we, we talked for you about the calling of God. And sometimes I think people struggle. Has God called me to do this? Has God called me to do that? And folks, I, I want to let you know something. The Lord is quite capable of making clear to you what He's called you to do. Now, let me give you another little aside. This is free too. Don't sit around waiting to figure that out before you do something. Lest you sit around and do nothing for the entirety of your Christian life waiting to figure out what you ought to do. You do not want to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment and say, well, now, Lord, I've done more if you just told me what I'm supposed to be doing. You don't want to do that. That is not a good outcome for you. Get busy and do something. Well, I don't know if I like it. Do it anyway. Find a way to serve, and in the process of serving, the Lord will clarify for you the nature of the calling. But you see, that calling can be very painful, too. That calling can bring us places we don't really want to think about. Let me illustrate it. A Korean pastor back in 1948, Pastor Son, in the town of Sunchin, near the 38th parallel, a band of communists had taken control of the town for a brief period. They executed Pastor Son's two older sons, Matthew and John. They died as martyrs, calling on their persecutors to have faith in Jesus. When the communists were driven out, a young man named Chai Sun from the village was identified as one who had fired the murderous shots. His execution was ordered. But Pastor Son intervened. He asked that the charges be dropped. He asked that he might be allowed to adopt this young man. Rachel. 13-year-old sister and the murdered boys testified to support her father's incredible request. Are you following this? He adopted his son's murderer. And here's what he said. And I thank God that he has given me the love to seek to convert and adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. The murderer, Chai Sun, became the son of the pastor and a believer in the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of you sitting there saying, I don't know if I could do that. You know, you haven't been called to do that. But what you have been called to do is respond well in the face of the suffering and mistreatment and misunderstanding you're in now. You're sitting around trying to wait for the big thing to do. Let me give you a hint. Most of the Christian life is not lived out in big moments. It's lived out in multiple small moments. 
It's not like you're given a big $10,000 to drop all at once. It's more like you get to shell out a quarter here and a buck there as you deal with these things daily. Peter dares to claim this. This unmerited suffering takes place in the majestic current of grace. It is a favor of God. And then he gives what I think is the key to the whole passage because he anchors this response not only in a consciousness of God and being commended by God and called by God, but in Christ's example. See what he does? Look at verse 21, middle of it. Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he goes through all that Christ did. We find ourselves, unfortunately, much more ready to align with Peter at Caesarea. Lord, you ought to quit talking about that suffering stuff. You're demoralizing everybody. Don't talk about that than we are here. I love the way Edmund Clowney put this. A life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. Do you follow that? A life of suffering is your calling. It's not your fate. The atoning sacrifice of Christ lies at the heart of all Peter has to say. He, in fact, he uses two words here. He uses the word example and footsteps. Example was actually used uh, of a pattern to be traced. It, we know from early church history that sometimes children were given examples of Greek sentences that contained all the letters of the alphabet so the students would learn how to write their letters. And we've done this with our children when you've taught them right. You do little dotted lines so they see how to make an A and a B, and so on. And the picture here is that Jesus has now left us a pattern to follow. And then he takes it not just as example, but he uses the term footsteps, that you may follow in his steps. Now let's stop for a moment. <laughs> because back in the, not the 1950s, I'm thinking, 40s, long in there, there was a very popular book that came out by a fellow named Charles Sheldon, entitled In His Steps. And it was an intriguing little novel. I read it years ago, and it has some very good stuff in it. But what it did was it basically took a liberal view of Jesus, that Jesus' death, Jesus' suffering, Jesus' dying, the resurrection, all of that stuff is nowhere mentioned in the book. Everything was about following Jesus' example. Nothing about redemption, nothing about salvation, nothing about justification. Therefore, I think it led many people to perdition because they thought all they had to do was imitate Jesus the best they could. That made him a Christian. That, my friend, is the pathway to destruction. Now, they say, well, why did you bring that up? We don't have anything like that. Oh, yeah, we have. It's not been that long ago. WWJD. You remember that? What would Jesus do? We had bracelets. We had Bible covers. 
In fact, I think we even had Bibles. Had them. What would Jesus do? Bibles. I, I don't know. Do you understand that mindset is no different than Charles Sheldon's in his steps? You see, the first question, my friend, is not what would Jesus do, not WWJD. It ought to be WDJD. What did Jesus do? Because if you don't get that right, what Jesus did will be nothing but the path to your own destruction if you don't understand what he has done for you. Now, lest you think I'm making a mistake here, I have you look what Peter says, because what he does is he jumps all the way back to the Old Testament. Now, keep that in mind. Old Testament's still the Word of God, right? We don't just have a New Testament. We got both. And he harks all the way back to Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. And in that text, the latter part of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53, and I'd encourage you to read that. In fact, it was mentioned as the call and the call to worship, and we've talked about this. But it does this picture of the Messiah. There's an exaltation of the Messiah at the end of chapter 52. And then in the middle, in chapter 53, at verse 1 through verse 9, there's the humiliation of the Messiah. And then the last three verses, 10, 11, and 12, back to a promised exaltation. Now, why do we stop here? Well, look at what Peter says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The ninth verse. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why look here? Do you understand, my friend, does this lay hold of you? That the moment God the Son, eternal, infinite, in essence, God, truly divine, takes on humanity, that in that humiliation, in that incarnation, he begins from the very moment of any self-awareness as a human being, 
he sees the evil, the wickedness, the ugliness, the selfishness, the arrogance of the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And throughout his life, he humbles himself. They try to kill him. He gets away. His disciples contradict him. He exhorts them. He loves them. He cares for them. They freak out. He saves them. Peter tries to drown walking on water, and the Lord restores him, right? Gets him up. I mean, you go through this over, 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 over again. Comes to the time of his death. Simon Peter's gone commando, gets the sword out, and Jesus is kind of like, come on, man. If I want to end this, I end it. Twelve legion of angels versus all of humanity, y'all dead. It's over. This ain't a contest. This is not about might. It is about the will of my Father and what I will accomplish. Why hammer at that? My brothers and sisters, you and I in our lives have never, ever come anywhere close to the humiliation that Jesus endured for our very salvation. Mm. The meekness of Christ not only showed his submission to his Father's will, it showed his confidence in his Father's righteous judgment. He didn't revile or threaten because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He had no need to vindicate himself. The Lord vindicates him. The empty tomb is vindication. Seated at the right hand of the Father on high, vindication. And the final vindication is in the second coming. For then there shall be no humiliation for the Son of God, only exaltation. And for His children, glory and delight and joy for the one who has saved us. And my friend, for those of you who do not know him, this will be the darkest day of your existence. Because then he's coming back, not for you to decide whether or not to believe, but to declare your eternal destiny. Now, Christian. You may object, Pastor, that's, that's hard. And you don't know. And you're right, I don't. But I know my own. And I recognize my own struggles here. Nobody, nobody likes being treated poorly. By somebody in authority. And we have imbibed far deeper, I'm afraid, of Dirty Harry and company than we have of the gospel of Christ. I'm not saying, my friend, if you've got a bad work situation, you've got to stay there. If you can get another job, get another job. Paul will say to those enslaved, he said, 
Don't seek to change unless you get a chance to be free. If you get a chance to be free, be free. And I think you'd say the same thing. You're working for somebody who's a lousy employer and they make your life miserable. You don't have to stay there. It's okay to change. But don't let their wickedness, their unfairness, their injustice change your worldview where you deny the very Father who has called you to this and the Savior who demonstrated for you what He would do for your salvation. Hmm. Ed Clanning once again. That which is to be feared is not the wrath of men and women, but the wrath of God. That which is to be desired is not the passing comforts of the world, but the blessing of God's eternal inheritance. This is not just a matter of suffering now and glory to come. The promised blessing is already the possession of believers in Christ. They now taste the joy of heaven, for they taste the Lord's grace. Here Peter speaks of healing, not by the hands of Jesus, but by the wounds of Jesus. Jesus' wounds heal suffering at its root. The curse of sin. I know this is not a popular thing to talk about. People typically don't build mega religion ministries on this message. But may I point out, that ought to make you suspicious of those mega multi-million dollar ministries when they ignore the clear declaration of the word of our God. Christian, let us put this all in perspective. No suffering you shall endure in this life shall compare to the suffering Christ endured for your salvation. No suffering in this life will in any way impinge on, mess up, diminish the joy that is to be yours when you get home. I think of it in these terms when Paul put it this way. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed to us. Now, my friend, do you understand how that plays? Suffering here can be horrific. I'm not for a moment denying the nature of suffering. I'm not saying suffering isn't real and painful and hard, and it breaks my heart as I think about other folk suffering today. Not just in the Ukraine, but other places. It's heartbreaking. I think if you've got a heart at all, you can't look at suffering children, suffering women, suffering men around the world and it not move you. If, if it won't move you, then God have mercy on your soul. But here is the reality. No matter the horror of what is faced here, if we are His, the glory of what is coming is of such a nature that we will look at all of that horrific 
suffering, and ugliness and declare, no big deal. No big deal. Now, friend, if you're not Christ, none of this makes sense. <laughs> I get that. So let me say this finally. Run to him. Fast as you can. You think digging in your heels and well, I, I haven't seen it yet. I'm not going to do it. He's not going to give me. I'll do my own. I'll stand on my own. I'll, yeah, God have mercy on you, friend. You're playing the fool. The sovereign king of the universe has not diminished one iota by your rebellion. But you are enriched beyond reckoning if you trust in his sight. Oh, believe in him. 